In the uh, book of Genesis, chapter 2, starting with verse 8, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. But in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, All right, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. It goes on sometimes later in Genesis 3, And the man, Adam and his wife Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? The man answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? Well, good morning, y'all. One of the things that we are trying to do with this series, we're doing an overview of the Bible, is to not only help um, everyone kind of familiarize themselves with the Bible itself, but to kind of connect the dots and show how different areas of the Bible are connected to some kind of random other areas and discuss also how some beliefs in the church have emerged um, as a result of particular passages. And the goal is to help everybody to create kind of a systematic theology, if you will. In other words, from beginning to end, to understand the entire belief system of the Christian faith so that you can have a, a very full understanding and build for yourself a faith that makes sense based on uh, the contiguity of the scriptures. So I'm just going to warn you, we have a bit of a heavy lift uh, today. I'm exhausted just thinking about what we have to get through, so just hang with me, baby, all right? We're going we're gonna to kind of run through this, a lot of stuff, but um, it'll be some kind of cool nuggets that maybe you haven't thought about before. So In the case of Genesis 1 through 3, it is the story of creation of man and then the subsequent fall of mankind. And it is absolutely theologically rich. And you couldn't believe the amount of doctrine and um, beliefs, uh, theology that that comes out of Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And so what I'm going to try to do is just to walk through as much of this as I can and kind of bring out some of uh, what I think are some of the salient points. So let's start with uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God has just completed the creation of everything else. He now turns his attention to the creation of man, but What do you think is the one word that's a little interesting in that passage? It's the word us, right? It sounds a bit strange because it feels like God's talking to himself. Like he's got a split personality or something. 
The word for God here from the Hebrew is the same word that we talked about last week, Elohim. And um, all the way down in creation account, Elohim has been used in a singular uh, fashion. But here it is used in a plural form for the first time. And so we go from Elohim singular all the way through creation. You hit the creation of man and boom, it's Elohim plural. Like there's gods, which tells us there's kind of something funky going on, right? Something is changing. And I, and I mean, what happens right in the middle of the creation story is we catch God talking to himself, basically saying, self, like let us make man in our own image. Why is this important? Because from the very beginning of the scriptures, we are being introduced to a very um, important and yet complicated doctrine called the Trinity, which is to say that God exists in three persons who are equal in their attributes and yet individual and distinct in who they are and what they do. This is a core belief of the Christian faith. We refer to the Trinity as one being, the Godhead, yet three distinct entities. And so we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And while the word Trinity isn't found anywhere in the Bible, the doctrine of the Trinity certainly permeates through all of the scriptures, but it starts here in Genesis 1.26. Now, this passage connects us all the way into the New Testament Gospel of John. Because in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, it talks about Jesus, and he, and, he, and he identifies Jesus as being the Word. In Greek, it's the Logos. So it says, Jesus is the Word. And he, later on in the chapter, he says, so when he says the word Word, it's really Jesus. So it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, referring to Jesus. So Jesus was in the beginning with God. So here's the interesting part. All things came into being through him, through Jesus, and apart from him, apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. So this passage from John helps to shed light on Genesis 1.26, doesn't it? Because we now know that Jesus was very much present at the moment that creation took place, and nothing happened without his approval. And so when God says, let us make man in our own image, it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, working in unison. I believe that Jesus knew before Adam drew his first breath that he would one day have to die for that man. So we go on in verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So this is another uh, theological concept that is often referred to as the Imago Dei. This is Latin, so it started in the beginning of of the church. Um, But it's Latin and means mankind is created in the image of God. Why is this important? Because when you're talking about evolution, we're different than the rest of creation. Basically, the Imago Dei sets mankind apart from the rest of creation, and it's only man that is mentioned, that is created in the image of God. Because with everything else, he just spoke it into existence. But with man, it was much more intimate. Elohim reached down, and with his own hands, it says that God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And with his own breath, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then and only then did that man become alive. 
So God formed the man. He was not alive. He created the man. He wasn't alive. It wasn't until he breathed into him so that he had the Spirit of God within him that he became alive. So it is not that we are physically similar to God, but that our spirit is similar to that of God's. And so when we feel something stirring inside of our soul, it is the Spirit, the very Spirit of God, because His very breath is within me, and the very essence of God is in my spirit. And when I live with the awareness that I am created in the image of God, it changes who I am and what I pursue in my life and what is important and what's not. And so as God is putting his final touches on creation, he has now completed, as Genesis 1 says, the heavens and the earth. Now we tend to focus in on the earth part because that is our context But this implies to me that while God was busy creating the world, there was a bigger vision being executed. Right? That there was a much bigger mission that was being implemented. At the same time that God was creating the earth, He was also creating the heavens and everything in the heavens. Because in Genesis 2.1 it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. Now that word hosts is really important. Because it is from the original Hebrew, and it is a military term that has the idea of an army. And not just any army, an army that is organized for battle. Why is that important? Because I think it's referring to the heavenly hosts that have been created. And apparently, sometime soon after creation, the book of Revelation tells an interesting backstory that the book of Genesis fails to mention. And so in Revelation chapter 12, it says this, Then war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Most people believe that evil originated in the Garden of Eden. Not true. The first moment that evil entered started at the top. It began in the heavenly realms. You see, Lucifer was originally an angel of God and apparently one of the big dogs of heaven. He was right up there with the archangels like Gabriel and Michael. However, he decides he's not satisfied. He wants something more, and so he sets his sights on climbing the corporate ladder, so to speak. He wanted power. He wanted to be the man. Bottom line is, he wanted to be God. Sound familiar? Satan whispers into the ear of Eve in the garden, if she'll just take a bite of the forbidden fruit, she will be like God. So Lucifer gathers together a group of angels who will follow him in his plan to overthrow God and take over heaven, and he makes a run for the throne. But apparently... He has severely underestimated his opponent, and so he is defeated. And when he is defeated, he is actually cast out of heaven. 
Now, before you get all pumped up, like, you know, yeah, Satan got his butt kicked and all that, Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, gives us a little bit of sobering facts. And that is that when that happens, there's a loud voice that is in heaven that rang out like a warning to all of us that says, Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, for Satan is gone. So everybody up in heaven is like all chill because Satan's out, right? But woe to you on earth and the sea, because now the devil has come down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. And so you say, well, thanks a lot, God. You kick him out of heaven and like put him on earth, and now this guy's running around all ticked off, and he's coming after me. Satan wasn't strong enough to defeat God or the angels, and so now we have the kick the dog syndrome. We're a little more frail and easily tempted, and so he starts coming after us. And so we are now the target of his evil scheming, but his first victim, his very first victim, was Eve. And so the first time we see Satan emerge in the scriptures is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, as he takes the form of a serpent. And it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And so he said to the woman, Hey, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So some things never change, right? I mean, thousands of years later, Satan is still whispering in our ears. Did God really say that? Is that really true? Is that in the Bible? Like, did you just make that up? It's not that bad. There are so many people who do so much worse things. This is, like, not a big deal. Go ahead. Well, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. She's very clear on what God laid out as the rule. And by the way, the reason for God laying out this rule of not touching this tree was because it's like God was saying to Adam, hey, you need to understand that you're surrounded by my love and goodness and perfection But there's a whole other reality yet that you haven't experienced. You don't know anything about it yet, but it's called evil. And there is the presence of evil that you need to avoid like the plague. And if you eat of that tree, everything changes. Our relationship between me and you changes. Don't touch it. But Satan persists. And Satan says to the woman, You're not going to die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes are going to be opened, and you will be like God. But when the woman saw the fruit of the tree, it was good for food, and it was pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. As soon as they take the first bite, all of a sudden they know evil for the first time. Before that, they were living in a state of the goodness of God, the love of God, but when they make this choice, 
Evil is so pervasive that they quickly cover themselves because they were ashamed of their nakedness because now evil is within them. We've got it in us, too, I'm afraid. Evil. Our knowledge of evil is born out of that fateful decision to eat from that tree. And look, it's not like you or I would have made a different choice and like if we were in the garden, there's no way we would have touched it. Yeah, whatever. We would have done the same dang thing. But it started with Adam. There is a concept in Christian doctrine where there is a belief called original sin. And while Westridge doesn't adhere to it, a lot of churches do, whereas it talks about how sin has been passed down to us from Adam and that when that happens, that we are actually born with sin. We are born with Adam's sin. We believe we're screwed up enough that we can make our own mess. And we're not born with sin, we just make our own sin. But my belief is that a door was open that day that could never be closed. And the knowledge of evil was like letting the genie out of the bottle. Once they took that bite, all hell broke loose. And that knowledge of evil, that knowledge of sin has been passed down to us from generation to generation, not the sin itself. The Apostle Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 7. And, you know, this guy was a hot mess. He says, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And so I find this law at work in me. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Right? We can all relate to that, can't we? I mean, there's times when we just know what's right and what's wrong and what we want to do or we don't, and it just changes. We could be walking down the street on an ordinary day doing the same thing we've done a hundred times. And for whatever reason, on this particular day, we make a decision that is completely uncharacteristic of us. And we do something that goes against God, and it is a sin, and it is evil, because evil has convinced you somehow, some way, in this vulnerable moment that it's okay. I mean, can you explain why we will go back and we'll do the same stupid thing over and over and over again, knowing how miserable it made us the last time? I don't understand. It convinces us somehow that it's going to all be different this time. Look, we're not bad people. We are not innately evil. We're created in the image of God, the Imago Dei to do good, to be good. We're just people where evil exists within us and it tries to drag us away from God every chance it gets. The the fall of man occurred when they took that first bite of that forbidden fruit. And in that moment, sin entered the world for the first time. Anytime, and I just want to be clear about this, anytime we break God's rules, it is called sin, which means that we are acting against God. Sin created the creation, like the formation of God's rules and, and sinning against God. That's not something that God puts into place in order for you know, us to not have any fun in our lives or as a way to keep us down. The rules that God has put in place are for our own protection. 
God designed us all in a particular way. And so once we leave the path of God's design, things go south. When we act differently and we do differently than the way that we were created, everything goes wrong. So alcohol, in and of itself, is not wrong. I love good wine. But you abuse that stuff, and it becomes evil in our lives. There's nothing wrong with sex. It's beautiful. But once you pursue sexual desires outside of the context of marriage that God created it for, it makes it wrong, and a lot of stuff goes wrong. God created us in such a way that he wants us to have a fulfilling, abundant life in the way that he designed us to live. And if we go against the way God created us to live, we are living a life of sin. And when that happens, I'm telling you, we end up having a pretty crappy life. And so for Adam and Eve, life was good before sin. They had run of the garden. They could have anything that they wanted. They were living in the perfection and the beauty of Eden. I can't even imagine it. But once they made the decision to eat from the forbidden tree, break the rules of God and sin, now they were about to discover an alternative reality. A new reality that they really didn't want any part of. Because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it says, The man Adam and his wife Eve heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? Now this certainly implies to me that before sin entered the world, God actually hung out in the garden with Adam and Eve. I don't know for sure, but I get the impression that this wasn't God's first time walking in the garden. Maybe it was the first happy hour and God and Adam and Eve were getting together for a little cocktail. I don't know. They were just hanging out. And because there was no sin, there was no separation between us and God. And so we get this amazing picture of what the world was like without sin. But it wouldn't last long. What I do think is that this was the first time that God couldn't find Adam and Eve. I have this idea in my head that every other time that God visits the garden, that Adam and Eve would actually run to God and want to hang out with Him and ask Him questions about the secrets of the universe. They couldn't wait to see Him. But this time would be different. This time, they were hiding because they knew. They had broken the rules. They had done what God asked them not to do, and they were ashamed. God told them they could do anything they wanted to do in the garden, except this one thing, and that was the one thing they did. What is wrong with us? I mean, we really, God has set this whole life up for us that, and I I can just tell you that when I live in the God zone like when I'm living in the ways of God, I feel great. Like I feel energized. I feel like I'm at my best. But 
for whatever reason, we push and we push and we push to screw up our lives and we resist the life that God has us has for us for what? Like for whatever it is that we've figured out that we think is better than God's design? Every time that we go against God's design for our lives, we end up in some desolate place. So God says, hey, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And of course, the man, he starts making his excuses and does the blame game. Well, this woman that you put here with me, she gave me some of that fruit and I ate it. Life would have been so much better if you didn't put that woman in my life, God. Men don't say anything. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What have you done? You can almost hear the pain in God's voice as man has broken God's heart for the very first time. But it certainly won't be the last. God is so hurt that he wants to lash out, and it's interesting that he does not lash out on Adam and Eve, right? Who's the first one he turns to? Instead, he turns to the serpent and he says, Cursed are you. He's so ticked. You can just feel the love of God as he's so angry at Satan for leading his children away and ruining this beautiful life that he'd created because of this idiot. He's so mad. He curses him. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So God says that we will be at war with Satan, that the offspring of Eve, all for generations to come, will be at war with Satan. And even today, his prediction holds true. But in this moment, God institutes his backup plan of salvation of mankind. His plan to get his people back, should they make that tragic choice. Because this verse it foreshadows what will occur, that eventually Eve's offspring will produce the Son of God. And there will be a fight that will ensue between Satan and Jesus. And in the struggle, the serpent may strike the heel of Jesus in that he will be crucified for our sin. He may be wounded, but he will not be conquered. For he will overcome in the end and crush the head of Satan and conquer the power of evil once and for all. But for now, the story of Adam and Eve comes to this tragic end. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. In that moment, the world changed. Everything was different. 
I can't imagine as Adam and Eve walked out of that garden, the only place they knew, a life of perfection and goodness and love and light into the wilderness of pain and hardship. It would be the last time that they would ever stand in the presence of their maker, face to face, until one day Jesus would make the world right again. So I just can't help but wonder, do you think God was so optimistic about what he created that he thought that that was it? Like that the Garden of Eden was truly heaven? I mean, you can't argue with the fact that the tree of life was there, which if you eat from the tree of life, you have eternal life. So it was all set up. It was ready to go. Do you think God was that much of a believer in us that he believed that generation after generation after generation that we would continue to resist the temptation? That you or me, that we would not partake of the forbidden fruit? I don't know. In Revelation chapter 2, the Apostle John gives us an image of heaven, and when he does, he says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. It was as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood what? The tree of life because no longer will there be any curse. And the throne of God, the Lamb, will be in the city, and his servants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there'll be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp, or the light of the sun, for the light of God will provide for them light, and they will reign forever and ever. certainly appears to me that we will end up where it all began, how God intended it to be from the beginning, that Eden becomes reinvented maybe in a more urban context, but that the rivers and the tree of life is there in the center and it is no longer guarded by the flaming sword because the curse has been lifted because of what Jesus did to conquer evil. And we're free to eat of the tree of life and to have eternal life and to live there in the goodness and the light of God for the rest of eternity. And once again, we're no longer separated from God because heaven, to me, is defined, whatever it looks like, is defined as the place where God is. And on that day, I just want to be able to walk in the garden with God in the cool of the day and hang out in the presence of God as he restores us back to the way it was intended to be in the beginning.